Hello, welcome to Changemakers. Today we're discussing what role activists play in the sustainable fashion space. We often ask the question, can fashion ever be truly sustainable? According to BBC Futures, more of us now understand that the fashion industry accounts for about 10% of global carbon emissions and nearly 20% of wastewater. And while the environmental impact of flying is now well known, fashion uses more energy than both aviation and shipping combined. This is Changemakers, presented by Sustainably Influenced, a five-part mini-series focusing on the people and businesses making impactful changes in the sustainable fashion space today. When we look at present day, the significance that activism plays in society is evident and how it's affected the trajectory of history. From the beginning of time, the foundations of activist movements have created pivotal change. Whether it comes in the form of petitions, protests or social media platforms, activism can play a major role in raising awareness and creating change. So why is it so important in the sustainability space? Activism is a significant catalyst to invoke real, real change through raising awareness, educating others and organised protests against systems, protocols and practices in place throughout society which negatively affect the planet. Sustainability activism can fall under the umbrella term of environmental activism defined by Conserve Energy Future as invoking various groups of individuals and organisations that work in collaboration in social, scientific, political and conservational fields with the main purpose of addressing environmental concerns. These people and organisations are collectively part of the Green Movement and have a common agenda on protecting and preserving the environment. Hi, my name is Toyo and I'm the Sustainably Influenced Research Assistant. This mini-series we wanted to introduce a food for thought segment to provoke new ways of thinking and connect further with our audience. So we wanted to know, is radical activism always a useful method to make change in the sustainability space or can this push away from the original focus and lead to backlash? For example, the just stop oil methods of throwing soup on famous paintings. So let's look at legislation and how that can help to implement change with regards to activism. A major hurdle in creating sustainable positive change is outdated laws and policies. Environmental activism has played a crucial role in influencing the legislature to enact laws that aim to protect the environment, as activists may be within the government and impose the change or even be involved in a campaign whose main aim is intimidating the legislature to enact a certain law. So let's talk a little bit about areas where we're seeing activism actually making a difference. So in recent years, we've seen a steady rise in education around sustainability through social justice. Many influencers are now taking to social media to showcase sustainable fashion items and brands they use or secondhand thrifted items they've seen. We'll speak to a few of these influencers in the next episode, but the aspect that it's making a big difference is the added digestible educational resources provided in social media posts and blogging with regards to sustainable fashion as creating a more sort of liberal framework 
where conscious actions are understood and informed is imperative for creating widespread change. So a few activists that are sort of leading the way, especially on a more global scale, one name really does spring to mind, and that is a household name now, Greta Thunberg, who became well-known after she protested outside the Swedish parliament in 2018, holding a sign saying, School Strike for Climate, to pressure the government to meet carbon emission targets. Her small campaign had a global effect inspiring thousands of young people across the world to organise their own strikes and take up activism in their daily lives. The impact of Greta's protest has allowed UN leaders to be questioned and held accountable for the destructive policies which damage the planet. Another industry changemaker is Celine Saman, who is a Lebanese-Canadian fashion designer based in New York where she runs Slow Factory Foundation, an advocacy organisation she founded to develop and promote sustainable design and social justice-oriented business practice. The outreach and education side of the organisation runs educational events on sustainable fashion. As both an activist and an industry leader, Saman's account is enlightening on all the ways fashion needs to change and what is happening behind the scenes. Something that I really wanted to talk about is representation in this space. And I think on the topic of intersectional change, a Forbes report titled The Time Is Now for Diversity in Fashion shows that a truly sustainable industry is one made up of different people of varied backgrounds where there is transparency into that representation all along the value chain and up and down the organisational chart People of colour are more likely to be impacted by poor labour practices and any negative environmental effects related to fabric mills, yet conversations regarding sustainable fashion are not racially inclusive. Many influencers are using their platform in order to raise the voice of non-white sustainable creators, companies and designers, such as Emi Ito, a California creator promoting slow fashion companies who also runs the Buy From BIPOC account, meaning black, indigenous and people of colour, which highlights the work of BIPOC creatives. Today's guests are activists taking their passion for sustainability and people one step further. People like Gemma Finch, who is the CEO and founder of Stories Behind Things, a multimedia platform exploring consumption, climate and sustainability. As an ambassador for Allbirds and BBC Earth, Finch is described as a trailblazer within the growing slow consumption movement. I chatted with Gemma about what activism looks like to her and how her activism has evolved into her business, Stories Behind Things. What does activism mean to me? I mean, it's such a loaded term. I feel as though there's so much that comes up when the word activism is, is mentioned in any capacity. For me, it means understanding that my actions make a difference, make a tangible difference. The work we do at Stories Behind Things is trying to inspire people to remember that their actions make a difference. When they're buying things, the conversations they're having with friends, for me, these are all forms of activism, daily activism that we can take forward. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think activism or activists as a title can be almost a bit like a negative term. Everybody sees activists as these people that really go hard for something and it's almost like fundamental about what it is that they believe in. But I think activism is something that has a place and you need to have people championing change in any capacity, whether that be political, environmental, social. It's just so necessary to provoke change and provoke those thoughts 
to be changed amongst, I guess, the general public who may never have been exposed to something like that. I mean, have you seen the activist community sort of grow since you launched Stories Behind Things? Or is that something that you kind of, has it been a fast progression or a slow one? Totally. The answer is yes. And it's been a fast one. I mean, our mission is to get the next generation and our generation engaged in the topic of sustainability, making change, implementing action. And I'm so passionate and I believe that uh, the actions that we take and the decisions that we make on a daily basis do implement change in the long run for good. You know, I've seen that conversation grow immensely over the last three or four years. And also the definition of what activism can mean. I've seen that change, which is such a positive thing. You know, I think there's this old narrative that if you're an activist or if you're into activism, that's marching down the streets, gluing your hands to big oil companies' front doors. That is a part of activism. Of course it is. And it's the one that has um, goes viral on Instagram and creates vast awareness that we need. But the work that I'm really interested in is understanding that there are other definitions of the word activism having these difficult conversations with friends about climate change fast fashion you know how to slow down your consumption or even using your version of activism to ask your favorite fashion brand why have you shifted to using organic cotton or are you paying your workers you know using your voice to implement change through brands friends all parts of your life is is something that I'm really interested in but I think it's this thing that, for me, my approach has always been softly, softly. And I think you catch more flies with honey. And I think it's that thing where I don't ever want to be seen in that negative light. And I think it is more about perception. But I still think that there's a place for everything. And as you said, it's that virality when it comes to social media that brings about that kind of vast social change with just the general public because they are kind of blinded to a lot of things and don't know what's going on half the time have you seen a change as a result of what it is that you do amongst your peers your friends your family yes I have which is really rewarding to see I mean when I first started stories behind things uh, we started with our clothes switching events that was the first sort of physical interaction we had with our community our audience our following whatever you want to call it and we'd have tons of people turn up to our clothes switching events with suitcases filled with clothes from their wardrobes that they don't love don't wear you know probably didn't even know that they owned and for me those were the first moments that I could start talking to people that I didn't know that were my age that had a shared problem a shared value and a shared want to do better you know in the capacity that is accessible to them and starting with our wardrobes is such a great place to start it's a tangible change we can make it's rewarding it's good for our mental health as well as for the planet buying less buying better that phrase we've heard so many times that still means so much getting rid of clothes that you don't love anymore and replacing them with new in inverted commas secondhand things that still give you that dopamine hit that event series for me was the first example I had that individuals, you know, normal people can be activists in their everyday life. You can instigate change through the decisions that you make on a daily basis. And it's an incorrect narrative that you have to be marching down the streets or appearing in parliament with government to make change. You know, I think we can all agree that governments are slow movers with change. Brands are quicker to move and individuals 
can instigate change through other individuals, but also with brands using your voice to get in touch with those brands. I always love this example of, I've heard it quite a few times before, if if you ask your favorite brand a question or a query or a complaint about greenwashing or whatever the concern is about sustainability, you may think, well, what's the point? You know, they're not going to see it. A DM is just a DM. You know, they probably don't even look at them. But if 10,000 people did the same thing, the chances are that same complaint will come up in their Monday morning meeting. They will discuss it. There's usually a quota of how many times something has to be said or a complaint that has to be made before it's taken further up to the people who are making decisions in the brand. And I always love to use that example because it just resonates with me that something tiny that you do can really have a positive influence. I know you've mentioned that people around you are starting to change, but was it easy to get them to embrace it? Mm. I think habit is really hard to break, even if the want is there. You know, changing your daily habits, buying secondhand when you're used to buying next day delivery on Amazon or wherever you're buying your fast fashion or just new clothes or, or whatever you're used to doing. It's a really hard sell and I think you're up against boohoo pretty little thing with indescribable marketing budgets making everybody feel as though they need to buy x to feel happy they need to buy two of x to feel happier next week and it's an ongoing fine-tuned machine of making people feel as though they need to buy stuff to feel good about themselves and you know cracking that is a huge task I mean our stories behind things problem is it's a communications problem we have a communications problem we are trying to and we create content that aims to inspire to make sustainability desirable exciting as glossy as buying fast fashion as glossy as that quick hit when you go into Westfields or whatever our task at hand sort of every week when we're creating content whether it's about our upcoming pop-ups or a new article that's going live about the top vintage stores in London is to you know how can we make this look editorial beautiful colorful glossy enough to entice our audience to shift and it's a fun, creative problem to have, but it's, of course, a problem nonetheless that we're overcoming, you know, every week to try and shift behaviours. Up next, this, and I have to say, this was kind of a big deal for me. And I just wanted to share that this conversation was just so truly wonderful. Do you ever speak to someone and just realise that you have so much in common? Um, well, that was my next guest. So... Samata Pattinson is the CEO of Red Carpet Green Dress Global. Samata has been bringing sustainability to the forefront of conversations and action within the global apparel industry, collaborating and connecting with creatives from Ghana and Nigeria across to Italy and New Zealand, working with established brands such as Louis Vuitton, Armani and Vivian Westwood. The campaign celebrated its 10th year of activism in 2019. Most recently, Samata developed and delivered the Billie Eilish climate and fashion focus at the Singer's London Overheated Festival. In 2021, she joined COP26 as part of the She Changes Climate Initiative. I think activism has been seen as such a dirty word. 
especially in the sustainability space. <laughs> when you link the two together, people often say, oh my gosh, oh, you work in sustainable fashion or oh, you promote sustainability to me. And I think it shouldn't be a dirty word. Being an activist can be a positive thing. So what does it kind of mean to you to be an activist in the sustainable fashion space? I mean, to me, I feel like being an activist is just being someone who's actively participating in trying to change processes, structures, or just engage in conversation that shifts movement. So it's actually like it's a conscious act of doing something. So it's not necessarily something that you can passively participate in, but you have to make a conscious decision that you want to be part of the dialogue, you want to be part of the movement, and you will actively participate in it. And I think the other side of activism for me, there is an element of challenging status quo so I always feel like there's a slight element of a rebel or a rebellious streak to activism because more often than not there is a status quo there's a way of doing things and the activism kind of sector seems to either be challenging the status quo or bringing attention to the other ways of doing things that people might not be comfortable with or might not be familiar with or might not be brave enough to speak up and say, yeah, we can see something's going wrong here. So, I mean, I've never really been asked that question, but I think it straddles those two things. It's an active decision. It's like a conscious thing where I will make a decision to do this. And then there's another element of, I recognize that what I'm doing is not part of the norm, but I still want to participate, you know? And that I think is a slightly rebellious thing, which I love to see. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I actually, oh God, I had so many moments when I just thought, oh, I'm so annoyed with myself that, A, I didn't realize I was being sold a, a version of sustainability that isn't true. I've had moments when I thought, gosh, you've been taught this since you were little, since you were growing up in your household. You just didn't use this language. There have been so many moments when I've had to recognize that, A, I was promoting a form of sustainability as if it was a new thing to communities that have been doing it for a while. And in that, there was like a moment of realizing how little I knew. So definitely I've been learning and unlearning, learning and unlearning. But the most comforted thing I've got from the journey is just the realization that you have been in this conversation since you were little. And I mean, this is me speaking just personally, like I have two very sustainably minded, consciously minded, planet minded, community minded parents who first of all, immerse us in like Ghanaian culture and just the way of being with elders, the way of treating um, community, the way of showing respect to people, the fact that like zero waste household, you know, my mum could sew even though she wasn't a seamstress, like things they were taught in Ghana, they had like home economics classes where everybody knew how to sew, everybody knew how to cook, like it was just stuff that they were taught. So this kind of sustainably minded family and my dad, the same thing, conservation, passionate about women's rights, has been an advocate for women having land ownership rights in Northern Ghana and, and children's education. So I kind of grew up around this at home, but I didn't ever associate it with sustainability ever. I just thought it's how you are supposed to be if you exist in the planet with other people. And the cultural thing was like, even though I was embarrassed about elements of cultural stuff when I was growing up and going to school, like there were just elements of it. And I thought, oh, this is a bit cringe. But now I'm just so happy that my mum pushed us to have these things around us and pushed us to recognize it even in our education system, because now I can see it's given me confidence to know who I am and to voice the fact that sustainability looks different in West Africa, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Egypt. So I've always been part of it, but I didn't know it. But it was when I kind of 
went on my journey with red carpet green dress and I started to learn about making things sustainably and making things respecting the planet and that was like my first wave of sustainability but it was quite a green and really fresh I would say very uncultured view because I was learning it therefore I thought in the most silly way you know sometimes when you learn something and you tell people about it you feel like they're just learning about it too because you're telling them does that make sense there's things that we were doing that were quote unquote sustainable but we've never known it it's just part of your culture and I think it goes right down to exactly what you just said in that final point you don't want to be pushing it as if it's brand new and you were the first person to come up with sustainability yeah at the end of the day like there's this new version of sustainability which is a slightly more colonized whitewashed version of it yeah when you think down to the pure crux of it and how culturally our communities have lived for so so long it's not sustainability that's just life yeah it's just life because I just think the language thing that's why one of the things I'm so passionate about is language because I honestly think um I did this video called dear fashion we are not your immigrants and you are not our expats because I just feel like sometimes language you know we talk about like different forms of discrimination and there's like the overt aggressive and then there's like the passive aggressive and I think sometimes language does that I think sometimes people use language to just like push people out to create layers and hierarchical systems so people don't even realize that not only are they in the conversation but they're pioneers they're leaders they're shaping it people are referencing them all of these things so yeah it's just life and I talk about like sometimes I say there's a report that we're launching soon that's about the language of sustainability but in it I talk about what if we stopped saying sustainability and we talked about the different motivations for why people do it whether it's efficiency because to me sometimes sustainability translates to being efficient sometimes it translates to being frugal sometimes it translates to value-driven stuff like I remember speaking to it might have been Vandana Shiva about we talked about ahimsa and this cruelty-free part of the fashion, sustainable fashion movement. And she said, it's not about sustainability. It's a value-driven thing. It's people deciding, this is my moral compass and this is how I want to live and this is how it affects what I eat, what I wear and so on. They're not interested in your language of sustainability. To them, it's just life and it's how they get through life making decisions they feel happy about. So I love that you said that because people have different reasons and the word sustainability doesn't even affect so many of those reasons, you know? I think we often hold people who stand for something to a higher level than we hold ourselves. But I think it's important to note that they are people too. And they had to start their journey with sustainability somewhere. So I asked Samata what her kind of non-negotiables were when it comes to shopping for herself. Here's what she had to say. Mm, Yeah, good question. I think my non-negotiables are, I always need to look in the label and... I'll be 100% honest, if it's a polyester, I probably don't get it. If it's a recycled polyester, I will consider it, depending on the brand. So I am quite anti-synthetics at the moment. But like I said, it depends on the brand. And I will often look and see if there's like end producer responsibility. Like, you know, you're pushing out synthetics and polyesters. What's your like reclamation? What's your plan for when people are done with this stuff? Like, have you even thought about it? So that's kind of a pretty big one for me. Now I'm becoming more interested in dyes and certifications because I'm just more aware of the impact that clothes have on our body. So I, I'll often pay a bit more for a brand that I know like has got Ercotex or got certifications or is part of ZDHC, like just that consideration for toxic 
toxins and stuff. That is a big thing for me as well, because I'm just becoming a bit more health conscious with my clothing. Small independent brands are my go-to first. I'll always choose a small independent brand or a boutique over like a well-known household name, always. And then I have got quite a long checklist because I've been in the space for a while to know what I care about. But I really want to see the brand as like, if you have a sustainability section, it needs to be specific. Like, I need to know what it means to you, how you define it, what your journey is, like where you are, where you're trying to go. And if you've got a hurdles page, even better. So those are some of the things for me. And then I have to love it. And I don't care if a magazine or a platform is telling me this is the trend, this is the look, this is the piece you need to have. I could care less. I need to love it. I need to know that I will wear it, that I will want to wear it. And that regardless of what any magazine says, I will be happy with it. So trend-driven fashion is just not for me. I need to fall in love with a piece. If it happens to be a trend-driven piece and I'll wear it again, cool. If it's something that's not considered on trend now, I could care less. Because for me, fashion is about identity. And I don't believe that anyone can tell me or identify a piece to me that can kind of dictate that to me. It can layer on to who I am and what I like. But there's something very strong in my self-esteem where I refuse to be told that in order to participate in fashion, you need this thing. I immediately have an issue with that. So that's my own form of sustainable rebellion. It's like deciding what I think I like, deciding what I think is of the moment and what will be of the moment five years from now and then caring less. Because I do think to an element, fashion does prey on insecurity. So if you can be sure and certain in who you are and care less about those other things, then I think that is one of the most sustainable mindsets you can have. Thank you so much, Samata. For my final guest for this episode, I'm speaking to Sol Escobar, a social entrepreneur, founder and director of Give Your Best, an award-winning tech-for-good nonprofit offering the first platform where people and brands can donate clothing online so that refugee women and children can shop for free with the choice and dignity they deserve. Sol is on a mission to tackle clothing poverty while improving circularity in the fashion industry and empowering people affected by displacement. As an immigrant herself, she's volunteered supporting refugees for many years while working in the higher education sector. In 2020, Escobar started her journey into social entrepreneurship, setting up her own nonprofit, Give Your Best. Give Your Best sort of sits at the intersection of overlapping important issues such as sustainability, refugee rights and empowerment of women. So Sol describes Give Your Best as a tech for good platform as well as a social enterprise. On the last episode, we discussed at length how tech is helping sustainable fashion progress and platforms like this are really helping to pave the way forward. So my name is Sol Escobar and I am the founder of Give Your Best and Give Your Best is a tech for good social enterprise that offers the first ever platform where people and brands can donate clothes online so that women and children who are marginalized, currently we focus on supporting refugees, can actually shop everything on the site for free. The journey to starting Give Your Best actually started a few years ago, about four or five years ago, when I volunteered in Calais for the first time. And when I moved to Cambridge, I realized that there was a lot of activity in Cambridge to support refugees, locally resettled families, for example, I started volunteering with them as well. And I started volunteering with a charity that organizes groups of volunteers to go to Calais for a long weekend and support other long term 
volunteers there. And my first trip to Calais, I can probably say that literally changed the rest of my life because ever since I went down there, I'm an immigrant myself. I always wanted to support immigrants that have a very different journey than me, yet they're judged differently as well and don't have the the passport privilege that I have. And going down there and actually talking to the people that are in that situation, you really very quickly realize that what you see in the headlines and what you believe to be happening has nothing to do with what actually is happening down there. And that is one of the main things that I focused on ever since was kind of actually bringing people with lived experience to tell their stories at my work, for example. That's how it it all started as well. And just really, really supporting that community because when they come to the UK, their journey doesn't finish. Their journey continues sometimes for years while they wait in limbo for the asylum claim to be processed. And it's a a different journey, but it's a journey nonetheless where they do need a lot of support as well within the UK. So after volunteering for a few years with these charities, the last time that I went to Calais was right before the first lockdown and everything came to a halt and all the support came to an end because no one knew what was happening. And I realized very quickly that marginalized communities were becoming more and more and more isolated really, really quickly. And at the time I was supporting this one household of women seeking asylum and talking to them to find out what it was that they needed they really, really needed clothes because charity shops were closed, charities themselves were closed, clothing banks, were everything was closed. And so, and they didn't have bank accounts, so they can't shop online. So that's basically how Give Your Best started. I thought, well, I have lots of clothing. My friends have lots of clothing. Let's get all this clothing together. And I had so many people wanting to support these women. And it went a little bit viral. I had lots of clothes. And then I realized that I couldn't actually just give them everything that I had, because that can create a problem for them as well, if they have too many things. And also, at the same time, after having volunteered for many years within the charity sector, I realized that with the best of intentions, there's always a bit of a power imbalance between the charity that provides help and gives and gives and those who receive that help because there's usually that sense of you're only worth what you're given not given a choice and so talking to these women in this household I told them my idea well if I take pictures of everything that I have I'll upload them on an Instagram page and then you can just choose what you like and I'll send you that what's you know, your style and your size. So we did that. They loved the idea. They were like, it was like having a bit of a shopping experience. And they themselves then said, but don't worry about it. It's a lot of work for you. Like, don't go through all of this trouble. We're in no position to say no to anything that you give us. And that kind of really stuck with me because I did think, you know, even after you start rebuilding your life, you are going to carry this sense of not being worth your choices and only being worth what you're given. And so I thought if we take away all of that power imbalance and we give choice and restore that sense of agency one item of clothing at a time. And that's kind of where this ties with the whole activism side of things as well. You know, after supporting that community and after seeing the issues that come up within that support, trying to give back that empowerment and agency and dignity, it's kind of one of the main core 
things that we try to address at Give Your Best through clothing, you know, because we all have that. And it's such an easy, tangible way for people to make a difference is offering that piece of clothing. I love the fact that you raise that power imbalance because there is a huge power imbalance there. Mm. And we're giving things that may, we may not deem to be good enough for us anymore or for the person that we want to be. And we don't think about what that says to the people that are then taking it. And that's why I love the story and I yeah. love what it is that you're doing because you're giving back that choice and that autonomy. I just wanted to add that I did carry this from my volunteering in Calais. So there are two core things that I learned while I was there. And one was there was a big sign when we were sorting clothes that said what you give to a refugee shows them what you think of them. And that can be applied to any person, not just refugees, obviously, but kind of that's why we called it give your best. And that's why we emphasize at every stage that, you know, turn your donation into a gift, like make it special. You are showing the person that receives it what you think of them with what you're giving them. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, while I was volunteering with a refugee community kitchen there that distributes food within the settlements in Calais, one of the things that they say every time is they prepare at least three different dishes every time. And when you go to distribute food, they tell you never give people food, let them choose what they want to eat, because it might be the only choice that they get to make that day. And that really always stuck with me with something so that we take for granted so much, like choosing our food, choosing our clothes. A lot of people don't have that choice and giving that choice it can actually be more impactful than simply giving a thing. We receive feedback nearly on a daily basis. And I think it's one of the things that keeps the whole team going. We are, our organization is entirely volunteer led, apart from one employee who's one of the refugee women who started shopping with us two years ago. And she's our first employee now. Everybody else, we've got 75 volunteers in the core team and everyone is volunteering. And so you do really need that passion and that motivation to keep going after two years. And we receive amazing feedback from both sides, from the donor side, people that tell us all the time how much it means to them to know exactly who the items are going to. And, you know, we've had people tell us that they've pulled everything they had on Depop or Vinted to donate it instead, because it means more to them that someone is going to use it, that needs it and wants it rather than getting like five quid off of it. You know, <laughs> Actually, today I saw someone who posted a review on LinkedIn saying that she sells some things on Vintage so she can make money to pay for the postage and then donates everything and give your best. <laughs> and so she's like, I'm using both platforms so I can give as much as I can. <laughs> How great is that? And that made me think, oh, that's the partnership with Vintage idea right there. <laughs> Yeah, so in the side of the donors, we get great feedback. But of course, what keeps us going the most is the feedback that we get from the women in our community. And we get it all the time. They tell us, we got a picture a few days ago of one of our shoppers who took a picture of all of the notes that she had received with every single parcel she ever got with us. Uh, from us. And we encourage donors to write a note of support to add little extra things like chocolates or menstrual products or whatever to make it into a gift. And she was saying how 
much it means to her to receive all of these notes and how she supported she feels and one of our volunteers as well who has been shopping with us ever since we first started and unfortunately she's still seeking asylum but she also in one of our team meetings she did say that before she started shopping with give your best she didn't know that people wanted her here because all she ever saw were headlines and like hate in the news and in social media and until she started receiving these packages and she saw like every volunteer in our team, like how we work to support them and all of that, she just didn't feel welcome at all here. And that really makes me not only gives me and the team the motivation to keep going, but also to do it publicly and loudly. And because people from our community are reading what is online. I've seen the headlines, I've seen the hate. And if those of us who are supportive of them did it loudly and post things and, you know, show it on social media and go to demonstrations and actually try to, you know, be louder than the hate, then that in itself is support as well. But definitely the women in our community is what what keeps us going. Thank you so much, Sol. So for the last segment of this episode, I am going to be asking my guests what they think the future of sustainable fashion looks like. I'm a little bit of an optimist and I hope that eventually we can all reach some sort of ecotopia in my lifetime. So here is what Gemma, Samata and Sol had to say on the matter. My vision for the future is from a brand perspective, um, you know, what do we want to see from brands is more transparency, real transparency, you know, radical transparency is the term that I'm loving sort of seeing at the moment in the press. And I think it's reflective of brands not having this smoke and mirrors attitude to trying to communicate their supply chain. You know, over the last few years, we've seen brands increase the information that they share about where the stuff is made, what materials they're using, goals and plans for the future. And I'd love to see that progress hugely. I'm a firm believer that and through the work we do at Stories Behind Things, if you give the customer all of the information about what they're buying, the impact, the decision, you know, where the item has come from, they have all the information to make an empowered decision. But the problem that we're seeing is that we're not being given all the information. So for me, I'd like to see yeah, an increase in transparency, real transparency with brands. You know, it's so interesting to talk about this because nobody knows this, but I may as well just say it on this because it's such a nice chat with you. About seven years ago, I started writing a Fashion Futures novel And I wanted to write a story about what the fashion industry could look like if it continued the way that it was, but also kind of embeds hope and design solutions to solve and to interact with the future we would be living in. So for me, when I think about the future of the fashion industry, I think about clothes being seen as more of an extension of the wearer, but in a different way. So like we care about what's going on our bodies because we know it impacts our bodies. We care about what we are throwing away because we know it impacts not just like another part of the world, but it impacts our immediate biosphere as well. So there's this conscious idea that our clothing 
is its own entity. It's its own living entity in the way that it doesn't end with us. So I think that personal relationship just needs to be elevated to another level. And I think the psychology of fashion plays a role in that and people understanding the psychology of fashion. I see a world where designers are creating for more specific customers, like customers and citizens, I should say, who have specific needs, who want clothes that can carry them across seasons, who want clothing that they can share across families and tell stories of the social zeitgeist of this moment. And they almost like a capture of history, a moment of time. If you go to the V&A or like these art museums and they have exhibitions about fashion through history, you get very specific ideas of what people were living through or what was happening at that time. Because things were, to me, more considered, like they weren't churning them out at such an extensive rate. I feel like now, if you were trying to look at our society and you were trying to use clothing as a means to tell those stories, you'd be so confused because there's just so much. I mean, it's like 6,000 new styles a day on some websites. Like, this is insane. So I feel like I want the future of fashion to allow clothing to tell the story of who we were, what we loved, what we believed in, what mattered to us, through how we have interacted with the things that we have. And for those things to be able to live on beyond like our time here. And I would finally say that I'd love the future of fashion to involve honoring the makers of our clothing much more. Because I think to an extent, the people who do well from the fashion business are is kind of more the profit end of the value cycle. But I would love to see like a raised or heightened awareness of what it takes to be a maker. Because if, you, if you've ever tried to sew a pair of jeans or make a top, you'll know that's so not easy. And so I don't know how we bring those people into our homes more. I don't know how they tell their stories more. But I feel like if we could just do that, the way that we honor and revere chefs of Michelin star restaurants, maybe there's a wave where we can honor and revere the makers of our clothes, not just couture designers, but like those invisible workforce that give us dignity. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I would love to see beyond anything else. The general consciousness in the general public and the consumer base is expanding and people are demanding more of their brands. We saw in the last few years, there's been such a focus on demanding transparency and responsibility and even legislation coming out in the origin of garments and garment workers and fibers, etc., which has been amazing and has really made a huge, huge difference. And now that is starting to happen slowly, but it's starting to happen within the post-consumer waste area as well. And I think that people are starting to realize it. It doesn't only matter where items come from, but also what happens to them afterwards. And yes, this is not my area of expertise. I really have learned a lot in the last two years since starting Give Your Best. But I also do believe that Give Your Best is in a really interesting position right now. And we are actually developing a new program to partner with brands to offer a solution within the post-consumer area. And basically what we want to do is to add an extra R to the reuse, reduce, recycle, which is redistribute. And to us, there is no need to have 140 million pounds of waste produced in the UK every year and also 5.5 million people living in clothing poverty. What is happening in that gap that there is so much waste and so many people living in clothing poverty? And so what we want to do is come in that gap and offer a solution for brands to reach their sustainability and circularity goals 
but in a way that is socially impactful so that they can contribute to alleviating clothing poverty rather than only contributing to fashion waste. And for the side of those benefiting from our services, do it in a way that is dignified and that is empowering and that, you know, not only provides the clothing, but also rebuilds that sense of self-worth through fashion. And so we are excited for what's happening in the end of life cycle of clothing field. And we really do hope that we can offer an alternative to disposing of unsold stock returns in a way that benefits society, really. Thank you all so much for taking the time to share your points of view. And I think one thing that we can all agree on is that activism can mean different things to different people. But one thing we can all sort of agree on is that we want to see change. I hold on to the hope that this change will come about sooner rather than later. In next week's episode, we will be talking about sustainable fashion and influencers. And these conversations are part of a series of live panels that myself and my former co-host Charlotte Williams were part of in partnership with Coach. Until then, you can listen back to previous episodes of Sustainably Influenced on all good podcast platforms and follow at Sustainably Influenced on Instagram and TikTok. I'm Bianca Foley. Thank you for listening. This season of Changemakers, brought to you by Sustainably Influenced, has been produced by Content is Queen, sound editor Amber Miller, and our research assistant is Toyo Douglas, presented by Bianca Foley.